Hi, it's Nick Brown, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease in Childhood. Welcome to July Atoms. As always, I'm here with Rachel. Rachel Agbeko, our Senior Editor. Hi, Nick. Good to be back. Yes, it really is. We were quite spoilt for choice in this month's issue, but I'll start with throwing out a thought in that sometimes we simply need to pause and take stock of what it is we're doing. As busy clinicians, it's not necessarily something that comes naturally to us, and the same might be said of our institutions. In this edition of ADC, we're invited to pause and reflect. Okay, so let's just do that then, Nick. Sometimes we we need to get a cue from our uh, maybe natural uh, surroundings um, to, to start that process. I wonder whether you could describe here the Margala Hills for us. Yes, so there's a beautiful mountain range essentially at the start of the Karakoram Highway in northwestern Punjab province, forming the edge of Islamabad, the capital of Pakistan. And um, the Rim of Hills is thickly forested, has vertiginous climbs, but the view from the top, and this is where the taking stock comes in, is, uh, well, it feels infinite, although it clearly isn't. But on a clear day, you can see miles west, um, probably as far as the Afghan border and um, and eastwards. And I can't think of a better metaphor for describing our need to uh, to take stock and, and and stop and take stock. Following that thread, um, we're going to be discussing several papers with quite wide-ranging topics um, that nurture this uh, this uh, concept, if you like. Um, we'll be talking about several neurology papers and also some papers dealing with inclusivity of children and adolescents in um, decisions about their own treatment. So let's start with with the neurology papers. Let's start with the brain. So here we might discuss two papers. Uh, the first one is a paper by Susan Byrne from Dublin, Ireland, and Deepak Ram in Manchester, the UK. And the title is Challenges of Implementation of the RCPCH Paediatric Stroke Guidelines, the Acute Management Component, and How They Can Be Overcome. Now, the authors focused on the small number of children that's affected by acute ischemic stroke, and they describe... Uh, what they say is about 169 pages of nice endorsed RCPCH guidance on stroke in children and young people. But very few of those pages are actually uh, around the acute thrombolytic therapy. It's a small number of children, but there's a potentially uh, a potential for preventing a devastating impact. And interestingly, they make the um, comparison that they're as rare as brain tumours, but we do think about brain tumours and we may not necessarily think about uh, stroke in children similarly. Uh, and neither do we uh, think about stroke in the same way as DKA or diabetic ketoacidosis or acute life-threatening asthma. Um, and although maybe less common now, meningococcal disease, we're looking at purpuric rushes. In this regard, let's pause 
what are the barriers to actually uh, get on par with what's uh, clicking in uh, to practice with uh, uh, with what we do in recognition of things that we know are high risk um, and have a very short window uh, to respond appropriately? That's a very good question. It's interesting that some presentations, symptoms, um, diseases have more of a tradition in turn and therefore lie higher in the subconscious or conscious. Um, and most of us will be fairly familiar with managing DKA and have a fairly good idea of what we would do with a child with chronic headaches and then focal neurology. But stroke, um, though it's on the way, I don't think has ever had quite the same tradition. So I think the first step, without which nothing will will follow, is um, is early recognition and flagging it more in teaching um, or in differential diagnosis assessments would certainly help. I also think that um, flagging and resuscitation guidelines would be a great help. And it's equally as much as as DKA and uh, and brain tumours, possibly more so because this is very time dependent, is the recognition and then down the line referral to um, a neurosurgery unit and or thrombolysis. Interestingly, um, I think one of the crucial differences between adults and children is that the pretest probability of a child having a stroke is is far lower. The standard is vessel imaging to show or exclude an occlusion. Out of hours and often in hours, MRI, a quick MRI, or angiographic access is limited and might, of course, require a general anaesthetic. And CT angio is probably the quickest and usually no general anaesthetic is required as it takes seconds. So early involvement of radiologists is important where there's any suspicion. Is there a paediatric stroke team? Well, yeah, um, radiology, intensive care, pharmacy, neurology, general paediatrics, even adult stroke, um, they see much more of it than we do. And then, of course, uh, neurosurgery in case of the need for thrombectomy. So moving on to the next neurology paper, um, we're looking at extraaxial hemorrhages in young children with skull fractures. So this was a multi-centre study, a case control study, from uh, several US authors based uh, in Seattle. That's James Metz, Washington and Burlington. So here again, there's a I'd say there's a there's an invite to uh, to pause and think. It's a it's a a very tricky question. There's a a child with a a fracture, a fracture seen on on CT, and there is a an extraaxial bleed. Now, one of the questions that as clinicians asked is uh, is this associated with an accident or is it abusive so that's quite a high stakes question and i think the the authors have tried to look at uh, a group of children uh, so under four uh, uh, in a, uh, a cohort that was there about 10 years ago 
200, of which 17 had abusive, uh, had been diagnosed with abusive head injury. And what they tried to do is describe the um, extra actual hemorrhages that were uh, seen. I wouldn't say necessarily in association with the fractures, but concurrently with the fractures. And they're trying to describe what the maybe the depth was, the position, and the configuration in relation to uh, to the fractures. And these were uh, vault fractures, uh, not necessarily Max Fax fractures. Those were taken out. Um, uh, and and they had some interesting um, conclusions. And for me, uh, on reading it, I'd, I'd say that what we might need to do is always pause. Um, if you see a local bleed with a fracture, a local extra actual bleed with a fracture, that in and of itself is not necessarily reassuring. There's always the need to look wider. Um, what, is the, what is the history? Um, uh, are there other signs of uh, potential of abuse um, and then go from there. So uh, this was very much a radiological paper but uh, sat in the, in the wider team um, who look after uh, children um, in the context of cranial vault. So in short, one of the conclusions pausing about what is it uh, what does it mean to look at a, uh, a CT with a uh, an extra actual bleed and a, and a fracture is to um, see whether there is a different explanation other than uh, uh, an accident um, and then cast cast your mind more widely so there's an inclusivity in in terms of getting information the next three papers, what we what we um, what we might discuss, is uh, that is extraordinarily important uh, to have an inclusivity in terms of information and and views. And the three papers are different in terms of topic content, maybe, but not necessarily uh, in the way we might think about them. So the first two papers uh, to mention here are both WHO related. Um, and uh, we'll be talking about the children living with disabilities are neglected in severe malnutrition protocols. So guideline review uh, by Magdalena Engel of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine in London, UK, um, and uh, her co-authors. It's now nearly 10 years, really, of the WHO guidelines for severe acute malnutrition uh, where disability is mentioned but there are actually no specific details for treatment or support so in order to flesh that out a bit the uh, authors assessed both national and international severe acute malnutrition guidelines which were available in several languages not just English um, uh, but also French, Spanish and Portuguese. And they're trying to assess um, whether uh, children with living with disabilities were included in these guidelines. 
Now, before we go into in, into the paper in more detail, there's there's something about some sobering statistics. There are some 291 million children and young people globally who live with a disability, and an estimated 47 million under fives who suffer from wasting. Now, it's not clear how many children and young people are affected by both uh, disability and severe acute mal malnutrition, but this is not a small problem. It's a huge task to uh, to write guidelines uh, in this in this context. Uh, there's loads of questions to uh, uh, to ask. How do you measure? Usual measures may not necessarily be helpful. Um, if 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 a if a child has contractures and it's difficult to uh, to measure uh, circumferences, what would be our expectations after interventions, uh, and, and whose expectations are they? How do we reach children and their families? Well, have you made it pretty clear that children with disabilities barely feature or cause no more than a ripple in the in the guidelines? And I guess. The reasons include at least um, the, the lack of evidence on which to base guidance, um, the very broad spectrum of disability, um, and so uh, a more general recommendation would be difficult to make. But if it were highlighted as a priority in the acute malnutrition assessment as are there signs of disability, then Rather like the stroke guidance, it might start to to, to feature higher. That's a, a priority part of the examination. Either way, the author suggests the upcoming 2022 data of the WHO wasting guidelines. So crucially, disability needs to be included in the systematic evidence gathering and should be highlighted as a research priority world over. So we have another WHO-related paper by... Trevor Duke and colleagues at the WHO um, and it's about knowledge translation in maternal newborn and child and adolescent health and nutrition um, and it was compiled in conjunction with the strategic and technical advisory group of experts so stage for short uh, for maternal newborn child and adolescent health and nutrition at the WHO. So if we're using the Sustainable Development Goals as a marker, and that's the, the carrot, which is uh, currently the most uh, widely used, having taken over from the Millennium Development Goals in 2015, to get near that target, um, this spoke clearly needs to be addressed in detail. Um, and a large part of this um, is a, is a quality improvement spoke and equity of access. So the recommendations made, the key recommendations made are number one, national regional technical advisory groups and subnational committees. Number two, strategies to improve guideline uptake. You can have the best guideline in the world, but if it's not used um, or not followed in the fields, then um, very little will change. And number three, monitor implementation of the guidance and gaps in knowledge translation at a national and local level. To me, uh, the key point is of proximity. So it's ultimately the healthcare worker on the ground with a family that will need to make this translation. Finally, 
we have an other paper, uh, also uh, based broadly around the context of inclusion. It's a really interesting drug and therapeutics paper uh, authored um, by Daniel Hawcutt and colleagues, including Sophie Smith at Wirral Grammar School, about the role that uh, children and adolescents have in drug reaction reporting. After all, they're the ones who feel the side effects um, and um, relying on parents uh, to uh, report, certainly in the older, older age group, um, may not directly translate to what the child and adolescent is experiencing. So I think that the uh, MHRA, or the, the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency um, in the UK, uh, are well on the way in looking at inclusivity in terms of descriptions of adverse effects. And as you say, so it's the, it's the child or the young person who actually experiences the adverse effects of a drug. Um, but they may not necessarily be able to translate that into telling an agency um, what they experienced um, and thus are dependent on uh, parents or carers uh, or healthcare uh, uh, staff to translate what it is that they experienced into a signal with which something can be done so that um, uh, there is uh, whatever interact, whatever uh, action needs to be taken uh, based on those signals that are coming through. In the UK, there's the uh, yellow card scheme, which is a which is a vehicle to report adverse events, um, and it's uh, voluntary, and anyone can contribute to that. However, there weren't too many uh, young people who themselves. Uh, would fill in such a such a card, um, and there's quite a few of them who do experience adverse um, uh, events that are related to drugs. So maybe one in five uh, uh, will have those uh, effects, uh, and about three percent of hospital admissions are directly related to those um, adverse uh, events. Now. What the MRHA has done uh, is they co-developed with about 300 uh, young people guidance on how to use the yellow card. Uh, And then they sent it out uh, in a survey how usable it was. And they sent it out to 13 to 18 year olds uh, to uh, have their opinion um, as to how how helpful it is for them themselves to report uh, their experiences, um, um, and there was a uh, fivefold increase in uh, children, young uh, young people, and this is young people between thirteen and eighteen who felt that they were more comfortable in uh, doing this themselves. So that's um, uh, that's uh, that's the good news. They also were invited to uh, to give some feedback as to sort of how could things be better. Um, some of it was about not so much about content, but how it was displayed. Others said we need to be mindful of those younger than the current group. Um, uh, so they had an open mind in terms of it might be that younger children uh, may also be able to themselves um, report. And I wondered about the representation of this group. So these are 13 to 18 year olds. 
these would be digital savvy people by the way the survey was distributed um, and they might already had an interest so I think it's a, a very good start uh, and some more work to be done and that more work may be based in schools for instance as the authors also suggest. Yes I, I agree I like this paper very much indeed because it's um uh, the message is, is is a generic one um ask the ask the child or adolescent themselves um certainly in the age group they study that should be the um the routine as the first port of call for this sort of information and i think the impression i have is that things are slowly getting better but that we have a way to go and this paper really reinforces that I think we're going to have to wind things up, unfortunately. Um, I've really, I've really enjoyed this discussion. As you all probably know, we publish regular podcasts, Atoms and Archimedes on a monthly basis, Spotlight now effectively on a monthly basis. Um, about some of the, we include some of the, the best content of the latest issue in the Atoms podcast. If you don't want to miss it, subscribe on your preferred platform including apple podcasts and spotify to get it directly on your device we'd like to hear from you so please get in touch through our social media channels and leave us a review on itunes so on that note thanks for listening and see you next month bye for now <laughs>